0: Hello and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show, I'm Chris. I'm Creston.
1: And I'm Ernesto.
0: And we are excited tonight to, uh, we've had Ernesto on here before and talked about Ruby Critic. And we are um, excited to kind of follow up on that and talk about, well, what happens after Ruby Critic? After you look at all these really cool reports, then what do you do? Uh, and they it's say not your always code obvious. needs
1: improvement. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> um, so we're excited about that. And thanks for being here tonight, Ernesto. Um, I'm looking forward to this talk. Uh, but before we get into that, Creston, how was your week? Well, how was your Man, couple boy, the last couple of weeks? Yeah, super, super busy. I mean, there's a, I know you were talking about
2: the uh, code freeze that you're going into, but there's so much other consulting I've been doing with regard to database upgrades need to be done and rails work that I'm doing for others so I've been super busy doing that. Nothing with regard to that, nothing too much to report, but I will say I did find something that was really cool and I've heard about it before but I actually started using it. This is a more personal thing is something called Jellyfin. So years ago I um digitized my CDs into iTunes. So that lets you just play I, your CDs through iTunes. It's They just load the songs in there. But that's only on the one computer I have. And if I wanted to play in others, I got to do it elsewhere. But then this cool software called Jellyfin actually lets you stream from a central Linux server your music that you have there. So basically you install... A server product on it can be windows machine that i i was using linux and it just finds your files you list them in your media and then they give you clients that you can use you could use your phone you can use your desktop uh you can even use your tv like roku devices can find it and stream music to them so i set that up i was like dang i should have set this up a lot earlier Oh wow. Anyway, well not really business related but techie related. So what about you?
0: Um well I had a really busy week. Well I've got echo in my ear. I've Uh-oh. accidentally left the monitor on. Okay. There we go. That's Mobetta. Uh it's kinda hard to talk over yourself when you're echoing right in your own ear that's a like trick Here in a stadium yeah kind of <laughs> um, but yeah we, it, it's it's been a little quiet actually because we we implemented we just implemented our code freeze for the holidays so we're not doing a lot of run in work um, so we're doing a lot of kind of back end adminy stuff uh, now that we've got you know, a little time to to check on that so we uh kind of finalized the new um branch structure and workflow for all our GitHub repos to make sure everybody's tracking in line with that. Um, we, we've put um, some more documentation in place and I'm working on some better API docs. And so it's just been a lot of that kind of backend administration stuff, um, you know, trying to get things battened down for the holidays and make sure we don't have anything that's getting ready to go boom. Uh, so that we can all you know have a nice nice time off and sleep good at night. so uh so pretty quiet actually how about you ernesto
2: um
1: yeah well you, you guys have been busy it sounds <laughs> um i've been keeping busy as well i had a couple weeks where i was traveling um i was an event called owner camp uh which is pretty cool it's basically like agency owners getting together and talking shop talking about like issues that we as you know digital or software development shops we have day-to-day and just sharing experiences and ideas and uh, that was pretty awesome Uh, it's an event put up by the bureau of digital if anybody knows of that group it's really cool it's all online but then they also organize some um, in-person events so had a great time, met a lot of interesting entrepreneurs and agency owners like me. And uh, then right after that, I went to Providence, Rhode Island for RubyConf Mini. Um, I spoke about technical debt and um, I had a a talk called Here Be Dragons, the hidden gems of technical debt, uh, where I basically go through the dragons that live in your code base and talked about the complexity dragon and the shape-shifting dragon and um, the untested dragon. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure we're gonna talk about that later in this episode, but um, I think it went well. Um, I think I talked a little bit about Ruby critic, uh, Flog, churn uh, all these Ruby gems that are super useful and can save you a bunch of time. And I uh, had some really good feedback. Um, there was another talk on technical debt and good the good news is like they talked about similar topics, but it wasn't quite exactly the same. They mm-hmm. had more of a a walkthrough of a code base and they were like shifting it into a place where it was easier to maintain and more sustainable. Um, if anybody has seen Sandy Metz's talk, uh, all the little things um, it was inspired on that talk. So I thought um, that was a great idea. And um, yeah, finally made it back to Philadelphia and I've been catching up with open source and Slack and emails <laughs> and and <laughs> Yeah, basically trying to see what's what's out there. Um, it seems like we have sold a lot of Tune reports lately. Um, these are performance audits that we do for some of our clients. Um, Good. Good. A few months ago, we partnered with uh, Nate Berkopec, uh who's kind of the Rails performance guy in yeah. the Rails world, and. Yeah, he's been helping us, you know, come up with the best tune report our clients can get. And some of the tune reports are really useful because they're like just confirming that the application that the client is running is like very, you know, well tuned. And some other reports are picking up on things that could be better optimized or Um, you know servers that are maybe over provisioned or under provisioned and we help them figure out like what's the best uh, configuration for their current user load Um, so we actually are all sold out of the tune report until January 1st Um, but if anybody's interested in you know improving their performance we are booking you know tune reports for January Uh, so that's that's what's been keeping me busy.
0: Cool, awesome. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's interesting. Nate Berkopek, one of the topics that we wanted to talk about, uh, hopefully this month, but we'll see. Is is Nate talked about? He he wrote something on when to use background jobs and when not to, um, like Sidekick mm-hmm. and stuff. And that I wanted to. See, about reaching out to him and talking to him about that, because that's that's something of interest to me, actually, at the moment, and where I'm working, we're struggling with, I think, too many background jobs, some of which are probably not necessary, but interesting topic. Anyway, yeah. so let's talk about, so you brought up kind of a, a good um, segue into this. When we talked last time, we were looking specifically at Ruby Critic and the tools you use to kind of analyze where your technical debt is. For the benefit of anybody who's watching the show that's kind of a newer programmer, um, define for us technical debt, what you think about when you think technical debt.
1: Oh, well, yeah, let's start with an easy one, right? Yeah. <laughs> what is technical debt? Um, well, When I look at a a code base and I basically inherit a code base, I usually look at a few things. And I think when the main thing about me, about technical debt for me is like, if the code base is super complicated, if it's constantly changing, and if there are no tests or the test suite is flaky or doesn't cover much of the code base, then I usually tend to think that there is technical debt there because if I want to go in and change it and basically start adding value to the project uh, and there's high technical debt, I'm going to have a really hard time getting my first changes in. I might change something and then that will break something else and there's like a lot of coupling between objects and There's not a lot of cohesion and there are like a lot of files that are doing multiple things and have multiple responsibilities. And um, so it's it's hard for me to find like one common definition of technical debt, but it's a combination of all those things that I I talked about. And as I was preparing the talk for RubyConf Mini, it came to me that Technical debt is such a relative term. So, what your team might think it's technical debt, I might think like, oh, that's okay. You know, I'm okay with that's those code smells being there. I'm okay with that complexity in that file that's not changing much. But um, that's one of the things that I think it's important to think like technical debt. It's a definition that you have with your team, and your application. And sometimes it's one thing and sometimes it's another thing, but um, yeah, it's, it's hard to define it. And that's yeah. why I think Ruby critic and, and skunk are useful because they come with their default configuration and you can run them. And if you don't tweak the default configuration, you're just going to get like a crowdsourced interpretation of technical debt right. um, about the code that you're analyzing. And if you start to implement your, your team's definition of technical debt, and you start like configuring these tools, then you can probably get buy-in from everybody on the team and basically get everybody rolling in the same direction to pay off some of the
0: technical debt. Right. So it's, it's kind of the areas where your code is unhealthy, what what causes it to be unhealthy may be different from team to team, but it's kind of a a look at okay we've got something that's a little bit sick here and this is this is where we're wanting to put some effort into making it better. And um, the the big symptom I find of technical debt is the difficulty of maintenance and troubleshooting after the fact. Um and and adding improvements, new features get more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um. So we've got a nice tool, um, uh, several nice tools. My favorite is Ruby Critic, but there are several out there um, that, that help us analyze places where we should be looking to resolve technical debt issues. But now once we've run Ruby Critic and we're starting to look at these things, how do how do we start developing a plan to deal with technical debt? What what do we do? Because it's that's an overwhelming thing in an old monolithic application. That's a lot of stuff to deal with. How do you start tackling that?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's all tied into the business, right? Like earlier today, you were saying like we're in your team. You were trying to like make sure everything is you know. In shape for the holidays and that the application is not gonna fall um, you know fall over or you know crash the minute it starts hitting a specific load right right or so so i think the the important thing is to consider the business and see like which parts keep breaking or which parts keep causing you headaches and Sometimes you will notice like, okay, maybe that particular component in your application is super complex, it keeps changing and the tests are not that good for for it. So when you start tackling that problem, you can tackle it in different ways, right? You can tackle it through the complexity vector or through the test suite vector and say, shoot, you know, this this exception keeps happening. This exception, okay, happens maybe once a week or twice a week, but that's like one user that's not getting what they want and they're probably frustrated and they might just stop using your app or they might, you know, um, stop paying for your app. So what you could do is say, okay, look, you know, I have all this information from Airbrake or Sentry, and I'm going to use that information to reproduce it uh, this particular scenario in my test suite. So that would be one way to go about it. Um, actually, that's my preferred way to go about it to write a test first to try to replicate some of the you know faulty behavior and then that gives me a safety net. So then if it's like, oh look, you know this particular component is, now covered by my tests and it's super complex so maybe what i want to do now is start refactoring it into smaller components or start splitting this huge file with thousands of lines of code into like smaller files and i'm not talking about you know breaking it down into a rails concern and then including it as a module that's that's not what I'm talking about. No. I'm talking more about like breaking it down into like smaller classes that talk to each other, and that way it becomes like easier to to understand what's going on, and easier hopefully to test it too. Um, so to sum things up, I think like there's the 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 refactor approach to make it easier to understand, easier to to um, to see how it communicates between the objects. And the other approach is to write tests for it. And it's, whether it's an integration unit or controller test, I don't really care as long as there is some form of test test, yeah. checks or verifies like the public interface is doing what it's supposed to do.
0: Yeah, okay, so so one of your starting points Once you figure out, hey, we've got to do some work here is start targeting specific errors and and getting some some bed work in those for then going in and saying, okay, now that we've got this all covered, let's start looking at how we can simplify the code. Um, mm-hmm. So sp- taking specific errors. I, I think that's a good tack because it, what I've found is a lot of times it's because it's so overwhelming, you know, especially with, with big Um, monolithic applications that have gotten long in the tooth Um, there's so many things that need help at that point and you're sitting there going I have no idea where to start but starting with specific errors and then saying okay in this area of the code now that I've made sure all of this is protected with tests I can look at how do I simplify this so I think that's a good, good way to start out and kind of break this down into chunks
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this, you know, drive to refactor or to to pay off technical debt usually comes from um, a headache that you have, you know, a fire that you were putting out, Um, you were maybe working on a change, and you shipped that change, and the change worked fine for your particular scenario, but then you actually broke something else then you found out like oh shoot you know like my changes did the thing that they told me to do but then it had a side effect and it it broke something else that I didn't know that this affected so when when all these like side effects come up and you get pinged and you have to like revert a change that you made just because it's causing problems then you know, there might not even be an exception. That's like, ideally you have an exception in your error tracking service, but if there isn't, and then there's like a user reporting like some weird behavior, then that's a headache that it's on your plate and you have to tackle. And you might add an if, you might add a test, um, you might fix it just like that very quickly. But then when you have time after the fire is put out, you can go back and say and see, like, OK, why why did this happen? Like, is there a way to rearrange the code so it's not so so this doesn't happen to the next person after me?
0: Right.
2: So out of curiosity, what happens when you don't have an error? Meaning that so when I hear about technical deck, I kind of thinking of it like a yoke around you. So like going into financial debt that's a burden upon you and you have to work your way out of it to be able to start saving money again. Well, I kind of think of technical debt the same way. It's something burdening burdening (laughs) you and you cannot develop or write code as fast as you think you should or ideally want to because of the complexity that's been built up. So I kind of think of that as technical debt. So if you're facing no errors, but literally you have this burden that is upon you holding you back from programming you what you envision to be efficiently, how do you address it from that point, for example?
0: Uh, just real quick, if, well, a couple of things real quick. Hey, Colin, how you doing? Welcome to the show. Um, also, if you're working at a place where you've got an application with no errors, I want to come work there.
2: because (laughs) well no i'm thinking of a scenario like for example i don't get a ton of errors it coming through in my app but Mm. you know i got ruby critic and i ran it it's like hey you got some f's you got some d's i'm like okay so so that's the scenario i'm thinking about it's telling you your stuff is bad in some way and i know it's bad because i'm like I'm looking at these particular files. I'm like, all right, yeah, I know you got me. Yes, it is complex. There's too many lines, yada, yada, you know. And I know when I go in it, I'm not as efficient working with it as I should be. So that's the scenario I'm envisioning.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. Um, I think uh, the first thing I would do in that case is to check the code smells that are being reported. Um, because many code smells are really like not code smells in my book. So that's why I, I go back to tech debt definition. Like by default, Reek is going to tell you, like, oh, there's a code smell here. Your module is not documented. It says, like, there's no comments at the top of the module that say what the module does. It's like, yeah, I mean, I get it that the crowd thinks that that's the code smell, but in my book, it's just like, I don't really care to add a comment at the top of the module to say, oh, you know, the user module knows how to register users because <laughs> as <need> it. <laughs> the code evolves, <laughs> it's probably going to fall out of date. So to yeah. me, it's more important to have like tests that are documenting the user. So... What I said in my in my talk at RubyConf Mini is that I'm, I'm I'm gonna go and configure reek yaml to say do not report anything related to the irresponsible module code smell because in my team's definition that's not a thing that's important to me so that's not tech net tech debt <laughs> so it shouldn't be counted towards the GPA score that you're talking about. Um, so that would be like point one, just like configure it to report things that you actually care about. Um, complexity is a different story because you can't really fight the ABC metric. It's just like there are assignments or branches or conditions, you know, all that. And you can't really say like, oh no, that's not a condition or that's not an assignment. It's like, it's an assignment, we, we know. it. Um, so that's um, for complexity, there's a different approach and it's definitely more involved and it's basically refactoring the code to be easier to read but um once you configure reek i would say run ruby critic again and see if the gpa scores are as bad as they were initially reported um and if they are then maybe i yeah, start looking at the f as uh the f scores and the d's and all that
2: yeah and I just made some of that up. I don't know, remember what the scores were or anything, but I'm just okay. envisioning that scenario. You know.
0: Yeah, and I think, too, it's when you... I mean, obviously, you want to kind of look at the Fs first. If you don't have a specific error to go target, look at the S first, because that's where your code needs the most help, obviously. But pay attention to what, what the Fs are, where they are in the code, because if it's an F that some little weird file off somewhere that hardly ever gets used, that's probably not where you wanna spend a lot of time. Yeah, it's an F, but who who cares? But hey, Mm -hmm. I've got this F on a big file that a lot of things are talking to. Okay, that's probably worthy of some attention because I'm probably gonna have to refactor it at some point or try to add a feature to it or try to troubleshoot something that came along with it and it's gonna be much easier if I get rid of this problem.
1: Yeah, um, I'm glad that you said that, to be honest, because um, I feel like when I said like, go look at the F score files, uh, I didn't take into account churn. Uh, And that's why, yeah, you can't just look at the GPA scores. So yeah, when you see Ruby critic, there's one side that has a pipe graph with all the GPA scores grouped by score. Um, that's important for sure. But I think the most important part of the Ruby Critics uh, report is like the churn versus metric uh, graph that you'll find to the right. And that that gives you an idea of like, yeah, this file is an F and is constantly changing. So it's gonna be at the top right area of that um, churn versus complexity graph. And those are the, the files that you wanna look into. Um, like Chris said, you know, if like, oh, a file is an F, but nobody ever touches it. And it's like, you don't really go, need to go refactoring it. It's kind of a waste of time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think that's important too. When you, If you're in a business scenario, which if you're doing this stuff, you probably are, it's important to think about what benefit does this have to the company? If I spend a bunch of time on this, does that actually – benefit the the company somehow does that move us forward in some way now m- does it immediately make us money is not the only benefit. does it reduce the an- amount of difficulty in troubleshooting a problem for a customer That's a benefit. does it reduce the amount of time it takes us to add new features to this code base That's a benefit so but does it just make it look prettier to my eyes? that's not a benefit that's that's a waste of time really unless you want to do it on your own time but you should definitely be considerate of of the business requirements and and what this does to help your team or your company move things forward as well if you're going to spend time on it I think
1: Yeah, I think um that's so tough though. It <laughs> it's is. Like if because at the end of the day, you need to communicate to someone who doesn't understand the technical aspects of code that, hey, I'm making these files easier to understand, so they're gonna be easier to change. But, you know, yeah, you can say like, oh, I I made the GPA score better. I brought the files down from the, you know, churn versus uh, complexity graph. But at the end of the day, the business value is like um, going to affect the velocity of your development team. Yep. And I think that's still hard to say like, yeah, well, now that we have been actively investing and paying off technical debt for a year, our velocity has increased by you know 20%. Um, I would love to know if someone has had that sort of effect and and see if, if they actually managed to say, like, yeah, because we actively started investing and in paying off technical debt, our velocity did go up considerably. I,
0: I have heard some anecdotal things about that, but I am i don't know that I'd call it scientific proof type of things or white papers that I've read. It's more anecdotal. And, and you know, my personal experience has been when I invest a little time in – in refactoring or paying down technical debt, it always pays off multiple times for me down the road. Um, But you're right. That's a a difficult thing for the technology side of a business to convince the sales side of a business that, hey, we should be putting some time into this because that's not something they can sell, right? (laughs) They can't sell, hey, it's easier for our our team now to – add new features customers don't care so mm-hmm. you're right they that's Care
2: a... if they can get the next feature faster than yeah. they would if you hadn't well
0: i yeah they should care but, but is is they don't think about that
2: the, of the free future ether which is hard to do
0: right so yeah i think that's an important point to bring up is while while the technical side should be cognizant of how how the things they're doing helps the business it's a hard sell even inside the business to the non-technical side to say, yeah, this is something we should invest in. Um, and I think that that conversation kind of usually needs to happen at like the PM level um, because that's really the the interface between the two sides of the, the business there. Um, so I think it's easier for them to kind of be able to speak the language of sales and say, yeah, well, yeah, this doesn't bring us immediate profits, but what it does do is significantly reduce our costs, which has the same effect on the bottom line. And it allows us to bring your customers more features faster. Yeah.
1: I think, um, it's hard to talk about it in theory. I think, um, if we were to use an example and say, you know, like, oh, every time we need to add a new payment method is, you know, it's taking us two weeks to do it, right? And then you go out and you refactor that code to be easier to to adapt and to add another payment method, and then it's like, well, actually, instead of two weeks, now it takes us just one week to do it, you know, because I refactor it and it's now easier to do. Um, that's easier to see for sure. Um, I think the the one thing we need to be careful is when we look at these course and we talk about paying off technical debt is that uh going back to Creston's point is like some technical debt is fine you know some yep. you, you don't want to pay off all technical debt. I think that's a terrible idea to say like oh we paid off all technical debt or we reached a hundred percent code coverage of our code base. It's like, I don't, I don't recommend people do that. I definitely think there are like healthy thresholds to consider, but, um, I wouldn't just be like, Oh no, all your files need to be an A or a B. I think that's a terrible, terrible, terrible way to go about it. Um, because it kind of forces some anti patterns, you know, um, Sandy Metz has like a really good example in one of her talks or one of her articles where it's like just because um, Rake is reporting like you have three different code smells in this file, it had it looks like you have duplication. You need to get rid of those code smells. It's like. Mm you probably don't want to get rid of those code smells cuz some code duplication is fine you know so there's no like um mathematical rule about so, some of those code smells uh, you know she says like you know coming up with the with the wrong abstraction is can be even worse than having some duplication in your code base So we need to be careful about that, about the absolutes and about striving for perfection. And I know us as engineers, we want to we all want to have an A plus in our (laughs) grades. Oh, yeah. Um, We want to be careful about that.
0: Yeah, seeing those low scores on 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 the Ruby critic just it hurts, but it's not always (laughs) worthwhile to, to deal with it. Yeah. Uh so and that's that's kind of a tough judgment call. And honestly, it's a good you know internally we will actually talk about those things. You know, I've I've brought up at meetings before, okay guys, look. I'm looking at Ruby critic here and we've got this D on this file. Is this something that we should be dealing with? What implications will f- will fixing it have and what implications will leaving it alone have? Mm-hmm. So I think a bit of groupthink there those things is really good because, um, especially on bigger applications because you've got multiple people thinking about, oh yeah, well this connects to this thing over here, and if we make this easier to deal with, we'll buy ourselves a lot in this other area as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, or... But
2: really, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road, meaning that you literally like if someone's if the analysis says this Rating as a D, you can say, "Well, how hard is it really for me to go in and change this file?" And if it's still easy for you to do, then you can safely ignore it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that really is yes. the thing.
2: Yeah, so I think like
1: going back to the idea of like what is technical debt is like. I think about change a lot and about like going in and you know changing the file to change a feature or to to make it faster or something like that. Um, if i can go in and change it and there're like very little side effects and i trust that the code is going to do what it's supposed to do and i can ship it to production and have a nice weekend with no fires to <laughs> to fight then it's like oh okay there's probably like not a lot of technical debt in this part of the code base
0: so so paying off technical debt deciding what to pay off and actually moving ahead and paying it off is is difficult um, it's not something that, I can't imagine any programmers that want to be in a position where they have to pay off technical debt. I think most programmers would prefer, I don't get in technical debt in the first place. So let's let's assume we're doing a, a, a new project here. What are some pieces of advice that you could give to developers so that to help them stay out of technical debt in the first place? What are the big things that that they should practice to keep them from getting in that.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think like I I learned about Reek when I had been programming for like 20 years and like it taught me a lot of things, you know, (laughs) taught me a lot of things that I was doing wrong. Um, So one thing that people could do is have you know, before they commit any code, they can use something like overcommit and you know this tool that runs a hook every time you run git commit. And then you can set that up to run RuboCop or Reek or Flog or whatever you want. So then before you start pushing things, that will basically report a couple of things and say like, yeah, you know, you're trying to commit this, but you're going to find that there's an issue with these code smells. You're introducing code smells. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like hopefully at that point you have to find a configuration for rake that you know lives up to your team standards. Right. Um, but that would be like a quick way to get like quick feedback without being like um, from a human that has to review your, your pull request. Um, and Yeah, I think that would be like step number one. Step number two could be to use something like Ruby Critic. Uh, Ruby Critic has a flag to compare your branch against the main branch. Um, And you could say, you know, if you don't want to run it locally, you can run it in CI and basically run Ruby Critic, compare it to the main branch and see like what things you're improving, what things you're making worse. Um, So, I think those are two two steps that you could take to see like if you are shipping a lot of technical debt or not. I will say like it's hard to to not ship technical debt yeah. <laughs> to not increase technical debt. Sure. So at the same time I don't know if like shipping a feature or shipping a change and increasing technical debt by like 0.1% is like a a bad thing, you know. Right.
0: Cuz there always will be some somewhere. That's mm-hmm. like saying yes, I've got a bug-free product. It just there's a bug somewhere. If you've written more than hello world, there's a bug somewhere. There's also some technical debt somewhere. And I think you're right. You have to you have to kind of find that balance between how much effort is too much effort for this stuff.
1: Yeah, what's what's the trade-off, right? Like what's because yeah, you can write, write bug-free, tech debt-free code in like two weeks, but it's like, <laughs> then your manager is like, why did it this take two weeks? You know, I just right. needed this feature to be shipped. And I just needed you to problem... change the red
0: button to the green button. What the
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well yeah, we're talking about like bigger changes, but it's also <laughs> like um yeah there's like a, a line that, that you need to draw and be like, okay, what's I really like this idea of like good enough. <laughs> like mm-hmm. what's good enough for this feature? That I can ship it and have most of the people happy with the work that I did. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, we are living in an agile world where we're shipping features. We think that the user might want this feature and we might be wrong. You know, we might be like, okay, we ship this feature and then nobody uses it. Right. So then, like, two months from now, it's like, yeah, just remove this. And then it kind of feels like a waste of time if you spent a Ton of time making it like a super, you know, tech debt free code to then be dead
0: in two months. Right, because the clients don't buy tech debt free. They don't. They don't no. care. No. No.
2: So, 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 so when I think about this, I think about this line that I had to Google it just now. I don't know these things off the top of my head, but the phrasing: um, make it work, make it right, make it fast. That's from Kent Beck, and I think the the programming process get just get something working, then okay, make sure it's giving you the right answer. Okay, now just make sure it's fast. Well, I think another aspect of that, or another nuance to that, is make it um, technically efficient, or spending a bit of time when you're doing your work to eliminate to do the things that, you know, Reek is avoiding the things that Reek is looking for and things of that nature. So spending a little bit extra time when you're doing your work to do that. I think that's a way to minimize, you know, adding technical debt, of course.
0: Yeah. I think I would add to the end of that, that statement, make it maintainable. Yeah. Because a lot of what technical debt is, is difficulty Mm -hmm. of maintenance. Really.
1: Yeah, yeah, I like the, the idea of of your code, you know, evolving and you know, yeah, like Crescent said, it's like you get asked to build a feature and you go in and you're like, Well, I'm just gonna, you know, debug this code to play around and make it do what I want it to do, or I'll just make it like you said, like ugly but works. <laughs> so that's usually what I do. It's like, okay, let's do it like in a way that just works. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, this looks really terrible. Like I don't really understand and probably nobody else will understand what I did here. So then it's like, okay, what how can I make it easier to understand for other other people, right? Um, so that's when I think um rake might come in handy. It's like, yeah, you made it you made it work and then the made it, make it right in my case might be like write a test and maybe run Reek on it and see if like it's it's good, or maybe there's something like you could do a little better. Like you have a variable that's like an A equals whatever. There's like, yeah, maybe the A variable can have like a better name and stuff like that is valuable, I think. Um and then yeah, making it fast that's more like later when it's like, well, does it get used once a month or does it get used like a thousand times a second? Then You have to consider that before, like, making it fast. Because
0: sometimes, yeah, you don't even need to make it fast. Yeah. I mean, I think it's... I like
2: your your make it maintainable.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm always thinking about when I do commits is, is me six months from now going to have sad face when I have to go back and maintain this code? Or have I made it easy for myself? Because if six months from now me is going to be, you know, pulling their hair out, trying to figure out what I did six months earlier... That's that's a bad thing if I can't even figure it out. So, much less, you know, some other pro- poor programmer that has to come in behind me and go, what the hell was this guy thinking? You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and... I haven't really used the the Ruby Critic compare feature that much, but that that could be interesting. You know, I assume it just works like the same way that the code climate compare feature works it tells you whether you're decreasing the GPA score of a file or or not.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I haven't actually used it much. We actually have Ruby Critic and and SimpleCov and a number of other analytics things that run on our our CI runs every time we do a, a PR. Um, you know, that's something I, I put in place earlier this year because I was concerned that we were actually regressing our code quality, um, mm-hmm. you know, and code health is not something that I don't see it commonly thought about in a lot of shops. Uh, but it's incredibly important to keep your code healthy if you want it to be long lived. Um, because presumably, you're going to want to add features to it, you're going to want to fix bugs that pop up, you're going to want to uh, you know, make it faster, make it better, make it available to more people. And if your code is unhealthy, that becomes very expensive to do any of those things. But in the moment, it's not something that you're thinking about a lot of times, because you're like, oh, I've got the hammer and duct tape out, and I've got to get this feature released because you know somebody made promises to somebody and it's, it's a whole thing and now we've got to get it done um but you're going to pay for that at some point
1: yeah and i think that's that's the thing that i i want to reiterate on it's like it's great that you added those tools to your workflow you know because then it's like it reduces the amount of friction in every code review instead of having like um like i used to work on a client that had a guy that was basically rubocop. It was basically comment on everything just like rubocop would. And it sucks, you know, to have like a human commenting on every single thing that, you know, could be better or sh- should be better and sometimes it's about like code style and it's like yeah. for code styles, yeah, just add rubocop or standard or whatever um, just you know, get buy-in from your team, implement it, add it to your pipeline, to your workflow, and that's it. If it fails linting, it's, like, very easy to be like, hey, can you check the lint job? It failed, uh, so just try to make it green. Um, But, yeah, I think it's, it's about communication. So if you add it Ruby Critic, then it means, like, you start to get visibility into that. And... Right. I don't know if you did the – did you take the step to actually look at, like, the default configuration of, like, Reek to say, like, oh, these are, like, the code smells that we care about. These are okay. We don't want to we – we're going to skip these, but I, we that would be, like, something else.
0: Yeah, we need right? to do that. We did do that with RuboCop, had a team meeting and say, okay, here's the rules we want from RuboCop. We, we need to do the same thing with Reek. Um,
1: oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's all about communication, right? Like we care about technical debt because we want the code that we write to communicate the right thing to the next developer, Yeah, to communicate that what needs to be changed if you're going to be evolving my the feature that I wrote. Um, when it comes to tech debt, it's kind of the same thing. I want us to like codify what tech debt means to us um, so we don't have this conversation over and over again. It's like we agreed that this code smell is a uh, bothering us or is it is an issue so we don't need to have like argument the argument again it's like hey we got everybody on on the same call we agreed that this is a code smell why are you ignoring it why are you adding it to like uh the the rig to do file right. like no just don't introduce it don't do it because we care about it um so i think it is a lot about tech debt, Is also a lot about people. It's also about process, it's also about team, it's about getting buy-in. So when it comes to, to code, I think it's useful to have the tools so that you don't have like, to have the manual labor to do the, the reviews and stuff. But I think it's more about like having the right workflow with the right configuration and everybody to buy in into the, the configuration that
0: you defined. Yeah. And I think another important point for teams, especially um, reducing tech debt also reduces the necessity for internal documentation. If your code is simple to understand, you don't have to document as much stuff for other programmers or new people that come in. Um, so you know that's one of the one of the code health things or one of the One of the signs that your code is having some health issues is, I have to. um, uh, I I have to um, make. Oh my gosh. Ignore that. Yeah. Sorry.
1: Caught my spam
0: message. Yeah, but you know, I if I have to document a lot of stuff. And I've got documentation everywhere, internal documentation. I'm not talking about like API docs for your customers. That's You have to have those. But internal documentation just to – when I bring on a new engineer, they've got to go through all these docs to understand my code. That's a sign you've got some serious code health issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I – and i think that's one of the benefits of improving your code health is it reduces the amount of effort you have to spend on that kind of stuff because your code explains itself
1: yeah i yeah i don't even know what documentation looks like in some of my favorite projects to be honest like i um I mean, I know that I I love Rails because of the conventions, right? Like I inherit a Rails application and I kind of know where everything is and I expect certain things, you know, that I can bundle it, I can run the test suite or I can basically spin up a development environment pretty quickly, right? Um, But yeah, I know like with we work with like huge monoliths that have been around for 10 plus years and usually those just come with Docker and Docker also made it easy to, just like get it started for on development, run the test suite on test environment. Um, so usually when I think about documentation for Rails applications, I think about just the readme, you know, that tells me like a few things and not that much more. Um, so yeah, what, so what do you mean by
0: documentation then? Well, so it, this is particularly prevalent when you have um, large teams with SOA architectures, because then you have to start writing documentation about, okay, this thing talks to this thing over here. So if you run into problems with this, you need to go look at this repo because it's in a completely different code base. That's one of the big reasons I'm not a huge fan of SOA because, well, different soapbox. But anyway, that's um, yeah. you know, and when you have a, a lot of team a lot of members of the team and all of them are contributing different things and you don't have good code health controls, what ends up happening is you have to, people are putting documentation, usually in the code, but like these long paragraphs on a method explaining why they're doing this parameter and why they're doing this thing and what happened, you know, and if if I have to do that, then my method is not, either not well named or it shouldn't be there or it's in the wrong place you know something is unhealthy about it
2: yeah
1: yeah no that's a,
0: a good point and what
2: uh, happens when the next person goes in and changes the method are they going to update the
0: documentation to- hell no <laughs> that, that never happens
1: oh i've done that many times where i just changed the code and i forget about changing the documentation <laughs> so i right. uh, guilty over here
0: well, and that's that's a inherent problem with documentation is that it very quickly becomes out of date. And so you have to spend an inordinate amount of time updating documentation that you really shouldn't have to have in the first place.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like you said, if it's in the tests, then presumably if you change the code enough, the tests fail. All right, well, you got to go change it. Right.
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, when I talk about like, the the things that you could do. Like that's um so we talked a little bit about Ruby Critic and the things that you could do there, how you prioritize technical debt and then which files to work on. Um but I, I like skunk and that's why I created Skunk because it's like I want to find and I was surprised like it didn't exist. I was like, why, why doesn't something right. like this already exist? Like where I just want to find the files that are super complex and have very little task coverage. And that's why Skunk came to be. It's just like, I just needed a quick way to find it. And I know that the tools kind of existed with SimpleCov and RubyCritic. Um, so that's that's one thing that I like about Skunk. It's like, instead of just going blind and um just picking the files that have zero percent code coverage from Simplecov and just writing tests for those um I don't want to do that I want to actually find the files that are constantly changing and are very complex and have very little tests because if they're constantly changing they're constantly costing the business money if they're very complex they're very hard to understand so it takes developers more time to grasp what they do so they cost the business money and if they don't have tests they're more likely to have a regression or have like an incident in production which means more developer time which costs the company money (laughs) so uh if you're gonna be you know if you want to go and write tests or if you want to have one of you know sometimes like we we do ask like junior or mid-level engineers to just go in and write tests for certain files then you can be like, okay, pick the ones that are at the top of the skunk report to say you're adding tests to a file that matters, not a file that nobody has touched in 10 years, but it's very complex. Right.
0: And I think that's a good point you bring up, too, is one of, one of the big things that we'll run into on a, on a long-running project is invariably you end up with areas of code that are not very well tested, and they need some test love. But it's it's most developers don't like writing tests in the first place. They don't. They certainly don't want to go into existing code and just write tests to cover it. That's especially code they know well already. That's a bit tedious. However, mm-hmm. when you bring somebody new into this repo, into this code base, that's an extraordinarily good way for them to learn the code base. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it has huge benefits to code health because every test you write in general is helping uh, the code health.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah. I'll just... <laughs> Like the tests usually help. Um, uh, I I like to clarify in my talk that SimpleCov doesn't tell you whether a test is good or bad. It just tells you whether it exercises a portion of the code. Right. It doesn't tell you whether it has the right assertions or not. But anyway, I prefer to have it than to not have it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but it's, you know, it is kind of a, i've found anyway and this is this is how i personally think too i don't like going back to code i've already been through and writing more tests for it unless i have a specific bug that i want to implement in a test so that i know it never comes back right but i don't want to just go look at code and say okay what kind of tests should i write for this you know that's that's just Uh. no fun generally for most most programmers that i've run into there are some that really like doing that but
1: Yeah. No, I don't like it. I don't like to do it either. I like to kind of apply probably, I think they call it the Boy Scout rule where you're basically when you're working on a patch or a feature, it touches a file that has like no tests. I like to add at least like one basic test for it. Um, And I think there's like a nice way to codify this idea um, into your CI where I think if you run your test suite code coverage enabled, you can probably set like a threshold for the files. So if you're touching a file that has like a 0% code coverage and you're trying to ship a change or a patch, uh, I think you can make simple cov complain and be like, hey, this has 0% code coverage. Maybe you wanna... Uh, at at least like 1% or 0.1%. Just make it non-zero, you know? right? I think that could be like a nice practice to, to add to your tool belt.
0: Huh. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. I didn't I didn't realize the simpleCov could do that. Like, can it look at differences in, okay, this file is different, so I only care about failing on that file if it's 0% or some threshold that you set, I'm assuming? I mean, if it doesn't
1: exist, I'll go and do it. <laughs> but but uh, I think it exists, um, and if it doesn't exist in Simplecov, I think I think it exists in one of these services that, um, you know, do like um, code coverage as a service, like uh, Codecov and Coveralls. Um, actually, I just learned that Codecov got acquired by sentry it seems oh did <laughs> i it? got an email earlier today yeah um but i think these tools these services out there help you by complaining about that they usually complain like oh you're lowering code coverage for a file but i wonder if there's like a way to set up a threshold to say, say like if you're changing a file and it has 0% code coverage you need to do something about it
0: yeah do do a fail in the in the ci run or something and squawk that would be extraordinarily yeah. useful. I'll have to look into that, see yeah. if we can add that to our flow, because that actually would be a good way to to start getting missing tests to be implemented a little at a time, because nobody wants to go and do, okay, let's spend three weeks just writing tests. But hey, if I'm in there, I could add a yeah. test or two. Yeah, yeah.
2: I kind of like... go old school with that. And... If I need to modify a feature, a lot of times what I do is I run the tests around that feature, or I look at that file and see what the code coverage, or I run the test and see what the code coverage of that file is. And then I can see, basically, like you said, from your president, where the dragons are. It's like, okay, what has not been tested, and what do I, the code that I'm going to change, I got to be careful here. Yeah. And maybe I need to write the first thing. I need to do is like you were saying Ernesto earlier it's like I need to write some tests around this thing I'm going to change because like I don't want to break stuff
1: yeah yeah for sure and I, I tend to prefer uh, either controller specs or integration specs when I don't know anything about that feature um, another thing that Another tool that's useful, I think I might have mentioned this in like the previous episode, is uh, CoverBand. Um, it's basically like Simplecov, but it runs in production. So instead of using your test suite as the source of truth for showing co- coverage or hits, uh, it will tell you you can run it in production for like a week, and basically it will tell you like what portions of your code are not getting executed. So it's kind of like uh, the most real way to find dead code in Ruby. Um, And and I know there are other static code analysis tools that will help with that, but I, I like the idea of cover band because it takes kind of like real production usage to tell you this method is never called. So it's probably
0: dead. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to strip out old dead stuff. We just went through an exercise with that, stripping out some old dead endpoints and, and controller APIs because we just had, you know, stuff that had been sitting around and hadn't been touched in 10 years. Sitting there thinking, God, this is just making everything 10 times harder just having this code here. So why why aren't we getting rid of this stuff? Um, developers seem to have this this inherent lack of desire to ever delete code. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yes. it's uh,
1: yeah, not a sure why. Classic, but... you know, commenting these part of the code because it might be useful later.
0: Yeah, um, but I one of the questions, and I had looked into adding cover band to our stuff before, but we have one of the things that I couldn't really figure out, and maybe you your experience can give me an answer here. Is does cover band have much of a performance impact on your production environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is, but I know it's like not zero. <laughs> but I don't, sure. I don't know if it's that bad though. But okay. uh, something you know to add to my homework list.
0: Yeah, because that, you know, that was something I really wanted to do because after we went through this exercise and it was kind of really, you know, we were manually looking through logs. Has this been used in this long? I really wanted cover band, but I have to be very careful about performance on our production environments. So I've been trying to find ways to figure out what kind of performance impacts that has uh, before I do it, but... um, yeah. So if anybody out there knows um, or has any any data on the performance impacts of cover band, I would really like to know. Um, that would be useful information. So, uh, chat. Oh, yeah. That's your that's your assignment for this week.
1: <laughs> yeah, I see that. Um, I mean, at least in the documentation, it says one of the key features. Number one is uh, low
2: performance overhead. So with no further details. <laughs> right, yeah. What it would be interesting, interesting what I'm thinking about is I wonder if you could do it. I don't I don't even know how this works. I was actually looking at it right now, but I wondered if you could put it some behind, behind some sort of a feature flag or and just enable ah. it conditionally and then you, that way you could turn it off if you runs
0: runs into issues. See, that's just smart. Um yeah, I, don't I know mean if it,
2: it is amenable to that, but.
0: Oh, I'm I'm sure you could because there's got to be somewhere that you load. I, I haven't looked into how to actually set it up, but there's got to be somewhere that you it actually gets loaded. Or just...
2: this could be also one of the benefits of an SOA architecture. You could choose one area to impact and install it in one service and see how it works.
0: Well, this is true too. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, we've got, and, and I'm, you know, most significant apps have a feature flag system of some sort, whether it's customer face, facing or not, they have ways to turn on and off things. And that's actually a pretty good idea. I may uh, I may float that.
2: Oh, actually, we're a little bit over time.
0: Oh, my goodness. Having too much fun again. Um, all right, so... Uh, Ernesto, thank you so much for coming and joining us and, and hanging out and chatting. Uh, that was yeah, thank you. That was really informative. I enjoyed that. Uh, once again, yeah. um, it was it was fun. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, chat, thanks for hanging out. Um, we hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, please make sure like, subscribe, follow, mash all the buttons and ding all the bells. Um, follow us also on Twitter at DuckyDevShow. Um, So that you can find out what things are coming up and have conversations with us about what things we've talked about. Uh, If you have any ideas or topics you'd like us to discuss on the show, uh, please do drop them in the comments or message us on um, Twitter or email us uh, duckydevshow at gmail.com. Um, sorry, rubber duck dev show at gmail.com. It's ducky dev show on Twitter. Um, Hey, Matthias, thanks for joining. Um, all the way from Argentina too. Very awesome.
1: Um, all right, go Argentina.
0: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You guys are doing good.
1: Yeah. Today's a good day to be Argentine.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: so I will be here tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern for Code with Chris. We're going to do a little more dabbling on things, um, probably look at some some more flex stuff. Um, so come hang out with me, and we'll just chat and have some fun. Uh, we'll be back next week um, with some kind of topic and some kind of person that we will reveal on Twitter as soon as we figure out what that is. Um, so another good reason to follow us on Twitter. Uh, so ho- hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week. And until then, happy programming.
2: Happy programming.
0: Happy
1: programming.